February 3rd, we launched as Praxis Church. Uh, many of you were there. Uh, it was a beautiful moment uh, in our story as a community. There was so much joy, hope, expectation of what God was going to do in this room. There was a candy table, kombucha, anybody? I mean, can it get any better than church and kombucha together? No, it cannot. I remember uh, closing the back doors. So every week we close up here and I remember closing up the back doors on that morning and it was almost like part tears in my eyes, part perma smile. Honestly, that morning as Heather and I closed up this floor of the building, we were just overjoyed at what God was doing. There was excitement, there was joy, there was hope. He was stirring something deep within us and it was beautiful. Yet as joyful as that time was, life hit fast. Like life in this community hit fast. Uh, with, within two months of our launch, there were all sorts of people in this community going through all sorts of things. Let me say it again, life hit fast. Within days of each other, a beautiful family in our community lost what was just a few weeks away from being a full-term baby. While at the same time, an amazing gal, this is within days of each other, an amazing gal, a part of our community here, lost her 10-year-old nephew. Can I say it? 10 years old. And this was within days of each other. While that was going on, we were walking with a fantastic gal in our church, a part of our community. She's a part of our community meal on Wednesdays, has been a faithful part of our lives. And we were walking with her as well on her own journey and her own battle with cancer. In that moment, she was preparing for surgery and we were, preparing that God's hand, we were praying sorry, that God's hand would be on her through the treatments. Then, within a month of that, uh, people that Heather and I would consider probably our some of our closest friends, they do not follow Jesus. On a tumultuous Saturday morning, they happen to live next door, came into our home and let us know that his brother was having pain throughout the week and had got into hospital on the Friday evening and was quickly diagnosed with stage four colon cancer that was quickly spreading to his liver. 37 freaking years old. By the way, I know somebody else that will be 37 next year, so it's sobering. So it was a bit of a whirlwind to say the least. Like here we are, like starting this new journey as an autonomous church, the beauty, the joy, and then all sorts of things going on around us. I remember after all this, it was a, a, a Sunday evening in April, staring out, and many of you have been to our home, we have a big window at the front, Heather calls it a fishbowl because everybody can see in, especially when we have dinner parties, people are like, their minds are blown that we have all these dinner parties. I was sitting, all the lights out, staring out the window, this big window, basically glazed over, looking at a light post, and all I could really say is, God, what the heck? Actually, I didn't use those words. There's junior highs in with us. There would have been probably more emphasis this morning if they weren't. Probably use a different word under my breath. What the heck? As promised, and we've been prepping you guys for this, we're going to take the final two weeks of our series from redemption to recycling, and we're going to talk about a ton of stuff. 
Uh, the plan today is to talk about suffering and grief and loss. We're going to talk about mental health, depression, anxiety. We're going to put this all on the table. It's going to be pretty heavy this morning. But I actually think, and you're like, well, the junior highs are in with us. I actually think this is something we all need to wrestle through. And then next week will be a little more light as we talk about things like, should women be pastors? That's going to be a fun one because the Bible says no, and we fully affirm that. So what's with that? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Me Too movement. We'll talk about the unseen realm. So um, things like demons, angels, the Satan. We're going to take time to talk about election, predestination, and free will. Are you chosen before the foundations of the world with no chance? Did you win the salvation lottery or what, what's going on with that? And we'll also talk a little bit about violence in the Bible. But for now, we want to talk about suffering. Because one of the most I would say the most important and major questions that people will ask us is this. I get this all the time. I've been in vocational ministry now for almost 15 years. It's crazy. I'm, do, do I look that old? Am I that old? Come on, help me out. Is that the thing? I feel like Ava catches gray hairs all the time, but it's kind of scary how quick time goes. One of the major questions that always comes up is how can a good God, a God that we just sang, loves us, and the Bible would say is love, allow people to suffer? This is a make it or break it for a lot of people. And again, I just shared the tension of all the beauty and joy. There's beautiful things in our world and there are all sorts of things in this room. I, I told those stories of some of the things that have happened in the community this year. That doesn't even scratch the surface with some of the loss that some of you have experienced and we wanna talk about that. So this is make it or break it for a lot of people. How can a God who says he's love or at least the people his followers say he's love let people suffer? To jump right into this, I think we need to keep before us that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, created with good intentions. His hope and his desire was shalom, peace. But listen, not just peace as something that is ab absent of conflict. We're talking about fusion and togetherness. God created the world for humans to flourish and live in rhythm with him. And we know, if you, if you pick up the story, that's like two pages. On page three, human rebellion breaks the peace and I don't want to just broad stroke it as we're living in a Genesis 3 world, but it's kind of true. It is true. It's not just kind of true. It is true. We are living in a Genesis 3 reality. The world is continually being undone by suffering and injustice all around us. And so as we talk about suffering, we need just to keep that before us. We live in a broken, fallen world. And a lot of people, when we talk about suffering, want to point to this really interesting wisdom book in the Old Testament called Job. If you're new to the Bible, you may call it Job. Have you heard of this book before? Um, and it, it's actually a really, here's the thing. It's actually, I think, a kind of a great case study for suffering. And it's so different than what we think. So here's what I'm going to do. Uh, to get us going, instead, because I, I, I value storytelling here, one of the things we want to do is, at least I do in communicating, is want to be a great storyteller. But can you really beat a five-minute cartoon video from the Bible Project? Like, can anybody do that? The answer is no. So instead, we're going to watch a little recap of the book of Job that helps us understand suffering in our broken world. Is that all right? Check out the screen. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, 
showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters one and two. But then in chapter three, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is, and he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world, things that we might see every day but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. 
So, where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered. And yet, he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. So much better than telling me telling the story. So good, eh? This stuff is so, like, what a day to live where you can take a little snippet and learn like that. Now, here's the thing. In the West, in the Western world, we love formulas and we love answers. We have been shaped by this thing called the Enlightenment. Now we have the printing press and we have all sorts of technology around us, around us to really help us grapple and make sense of things. But that's not always how Hebrew literature works and that's also not always how the Bible works. You know what's funny in this whole thing? It's not necessarily funny, it's just interesting. Job never learns why he suffered. Actually, the whole point of the book is wisdom and the whole point of the book of Job is to actually show that Job, even though he suffered, was innocent. For Western people, it's kind of hard to come around some of this and give, give an answer like this. There are no answers to this. And that actually is the point. And we need to think through this around suffering. So you, you want to know what I think? Do you want to know what I think? Here's what I think. I think this. I think it's not beyond, and I'm talking about myself here. It is not beyond me that I could make decisions that could lead to my suffering. And some of you are like, oh yeah, I know what you're saying, right? Like you're like, we know you. We know that that's very possible, right? If I left Heather, if I abandoned Heather and my kids, or I hurt someone, if I killed someone, or you put in your own example, there would be consequences and most likely I would suffer from those consequences. So there's things that are actually in our control, but actually that's not what we're talking about as much. I think we all understand that there's consequences for our actions at times, but for the things that are out of our control, like in our innocence, like things like where we're born and how we look and so on, why do humans suffer? We don't know. <laughs> Welcome to church. Thanks for coming. Let's pray. You want to go home? Uh, somebody's like, yes, I do right now. Pray. Okay. We just don't know. It seems in the story, well, it seems very clear here that God allowed the Satan, Satan, to bring affliction on Job. So I'm not convinced that God is out hoping and making everybody suffer, you know, hoping that everybody will suffer as much as things are allowed in his free world that's full of injustice and brokenness. I think he allows things just as he did here with Job. So I'll just say this, we need to be very careful to assert that someone is suffering because of sin or because of something that they have done to deserve it. And many of you need to hear this because maybe you grew up in charismatic environments where there were people around you that told you, hey, that person is suffering from cancer or that person is going through a trial because they have sin in their lives. Has anybody heard this? I'm the only one that needs therapy. Okay, well, great. This, at least this is free. I mean, this is kind of free for me to do this. I think some of you are in the same, same boat. This jargon that comes off our mouths, well, oh, you know, there's some difficulties in their lives. I wonder what they've done. You know who obliterates this idea? Jesus. Jesus obliterates this idea. There's one great example. We don't have a ton of time, but if you have a Bible, you want to open it up. John chapter 9, he's walking along with his disciples, and it's interesting that his disciples seem to be shaped by a karma-like idea of suffering, which is crazy because they're Jewish, and they grew up on the Jewish scriptures and know all about Yahweh, and yet they kind of have this retribution or karma idea of suffering. 
If you open it up, verse one, it says, as he, Jesus, went along, he saw a blind man from birth and his disciples asked him this, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they legit asked Jesus, yo, this guy has been blind from birth. Who's, who's responsible for this? Sin in his life, maybe his parents, maybe his grandparents. You know, we do this. Oh my goodness, somebody is suffering. I wonder what they've done. And Jesus says this, he just explodes this idea. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents have sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed within him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming. So Jesus knows there's going to be a day where I'm not here, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Doesn't he just like shatter that in a million pieces? The disciples want to know, okay, why are these people suffering? Jesus is like, no, no, you don't understand this. Basically, Jesus is saying that this is happening in this man so that in his suffering, the works of God might be put on display. And then what does Jesus do? Read the story. We don't have time for it. He heals him. Jesus brings healing. Now talk about a completely countercultural way of thinking around suffering. Because we want to point the finger. And it's just interesting that Jesus just turns that on its head. Suffering is never good. But one of the things you learn throughout the scripture in all that we go through is that what God can do through suffering can be good. It can actually be purifying and redeeming on our walk. And listen, I know you're probably sitting here and if you're going through something, you're just like, shut up. I get it. I totally understand. But there is this wisdom from the scriptures that leads us to believe that this is the place where God brings healing in our suffering. Remember, as Jesus followers, we think differently. We believe that this present age, this present life, is not all that matters. Can I get an amen on that one? We're these weirdos that don't just think in light of the time between I take my first breath and my last breath on this earth. We think much deeper. deeper. We believe that this present life is not all that matters. We hold on to the hope of the age to come and we hold on to this hope that as we blend into that age to come, our suffering will be made complete. And can I just remind us too, the Jesus story is a story of suffering. Like, and I don't think I need to remind us, but like the whole idea of like thinking that this life is going to be easy in this present age is so interesting because Jesus himself probably suffered the most. And he was always pushing to this day of glorification, this day where the suffering would be made complete and we would be made whole. So what I'm saying is this, is that Jesus suffered tremendously. And the beautiful thing with that is he actually empathizes with us. We have a high priest that actually understands. Imagine a God just far off kind of sends down golden tablets in book form and says like, hey, suffer well, but doesn't give us flesh and blood example. He actually gave himself in suffering to show with us and empathize with us, but he is suffering no more. Jesus is suffering no more. He's glorified, and that's the actually future hope of our story. So what happened to Jesus will happen to us. He is glorified, and we will be glorified. So I just want to say, and I think we're in a pretty healthy spot with this, but I am very careful to attribute God as the one who makes us suffer. I just choose to believe that God can bring good from our suffering in this age, and we are called to suffer well. And so no matter what you're going through, we believe that this is actually part of the journey. I believe that this is part of the journey for us. Now, what often comes with suffering a lot of the times is grief and loss. And there's always, 
there's always questions around grief and loss. There's been people in our community this year, as I've said, that have experienced grief and loss. In the next number of years, many of us will. It's a part of life, uh, sometimes unexpected. And I think we need to think through grief and loss. There are a vast array of losses in our lives. And a guy uh, named Pete Scazzaro has really helped us over the last number of years. We did a, a series twice, once on Sundays and then once through podcast form, uh, called The Emotionally Healthy Church. And Pete Scazzaro has a number of steps in these teachings. And one of the things he talks about is that a healthy church is a church that learns how to embrace grieving and loss, because it's going to happen. He says this, in emotionally healthy churches, people embrace grief as a way to become more like God. And I know at first glance, we don't think of it like that, but that is actually part of the story. Our grief and, and learning how to lose and learning in grief helps us become more like God. Uh, he goes on and says, they understand what a critical component of discipleship grieving our losses is. Why, he says, it is the only pathway to becoming a compassionate person like our Lord Jesus. Pete, what he does is he gives actually some steps in how, and these aren't like cookie cutter steps, but he shares kind of three phases and how as people, as Jesus followers, we can embrace grieving and loss. Phase one is this, uh, pay, a, uh, sorry, phase one is this, pay attention as part of the grieving process. So he encourages us as Jesus followers to, to pay attention to things like the Psalms. Did you know a vast ma majority of the Psalms are lament? That's one thing we don't do great in the North American church. We're kind of happy, clappy, and like, it's Sunday, and the sun is shining through the glass windows, and it's amazing, right? We want to like kind of have upbeat. You have like, uh, who is it? The calm truths playing during break, and everybody, you know, just got some good vibes in here. But it's interesting that God's people, through the Psalter, have always had these seasons. Just read it, and you read the Psalter, the Psalms, and you realize the people, some of the people that are writing these Psalms are in deep depression, crying out to God to save them and help them. He talks about paying attention to our pain, being aware, self-aware of the pain around us. And he also talks about how we should follow how Jesus grieved because we have somebody that's gone before us and just even reading the gospels and how Jesus experienced grief. He lost his best friend. He had friends around him. He obviously was going to the cross, sweating blood and tears. Jesus lived this life. And so one of the things we need to do is pay attention as part of the grieving process. Phase two though, he says, is that we need to learn to wait in this confusing in-between. He talks about how we have a greater capacity for God and to wait on him as we live this out. And so one of the things that he talks about in the kind of confusing in between is actually the rhythm of the Psalms. I don't know if you know this, but if you pick up most of the Psalms, most of the Psalms always start with orientation. Then it goes to a, a, some phrases of disorientation. And then always it seems at the end, there's this reorientation. And so as we live in this second phase and we learn to live and wait in the confusing in between, the Psalms can be actually something as we pray them that help us. Maybe you'll notice the next time when we read the Psalms on Sunday, often it starts with great orientation, then something goes terribly wrong and the, the writer is like crying out to God to bring reorientation and then it happens. And so I think this is a model for us in how we're to learn to wait in the confusing in between. And then phase three, Scazzaro talks about allowing the old to birth the new. So as we go through grief and loss and we learn as a community to be open with one another and to, to lean into this, that we could actually become kinder and compassionate, more compassionate people. 
we could be people that are less covetous. You know, when we go, and it's interesting, some of you that have gone through things, you know that as you embrace grieving and loss, your life kind of takes a turn. And as you experience things, and even Heather and I, we haven't had like tremendous loss in our lives, but we've grieved some things. You mature. There's less of uh, an importance to impress each other or other people. You're liberated from that. We're able, Scazzaro talks, to live more comfortably with mystery when it comes to God and his plans. Like, I don't know about you in my 20s. I thought I knew everything, right? Anybody, and some of you in your 20s, you'll learn. It's good. You'll learn that you don't know much over uh, your life. And I think one of the things when you deal with grief and you deal with loss, whether what can seem insignificant or significant, you begin to have a different view of the world that God's put it within you, put, put before you, and mystery becomes more beautiful. At least that's been my story. Instead of trying to have all the answers in my 20s, I'm now learning as I edge to my late 30s. And I've been through some things that I don't have at all case. That mystery is actually a beautiful thing. Uh, So one of the things, and we can put this online. We've done this before as a community. Scazzaro has an inventory of what he would call devastating losses and natural losses. And he just, it's just a worksheet that you can go through. Self-awareness is a huge piece of this whole thing. So there's devastating losses in in life, like the death of a child or a spouse, a family member, a friend. There may be mental or physical disability, divorce, loss of a job, you know, cancer, disease, illness, things that are devastating. But one of the things that Scazzaro would say is be very aware, not just of the devastating things, but also what can seem as insignificant or what he would call natural losses. There are natural losses in our lives that we need to just, we need to embrace in grief, right? So a church moves to, like things that may seem silly, a church moves to a new building. By the way, there's no building in our future right now. Okay, so don't worry. That's from his book. Okay, I'm not saying that. Or, you know, having a child, some of you know this, can do things to you. You couldn't do things that you used to do. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, that's, we should just pray on that one. Go home, right? Being a parent's amazing, by the way. Just to let you know, it's amazing. Uh, getting married is, can seem like a, a natural loss. Or entering into old age, retiring from work. Maybe a, a close friend is, has gotten married and you're, you're, not, you're, you're single and they've been married. Or friends move away or your community group gets too big and it multiplies and you maybe don't have some of those weekly relationships that you have or a pastor joins or leaves another staff or a faithful pet dies. These things that can kind of feel like they're not very significant, Scazzaro would say, take inventory of those things in your journey. My prayer is that we would be a community that could embrace grief and loss well. It's part of the spiritual journey. When you look at Jesus' life, it was a huge part of his life. And this is not to say that some haven't experienced more devastating things than others. Obviously in this room, that's true. But what if we could all kind of live this out, take an inventory, become self-aware of some of these things. Now, when it comes to suffering, grief, and loss, we're in a, I wouldn't say a new moment, but there's been heightened, there's been heightened exposure around the reality of mental health and the mental health crisis that we live in especially around anxiety and depression. And we need to talk about this. I'm not a professional. We've actually had a professional in a few years ago to talk through some of these things. I believe it's very, very important. I also think that the the scriptures lead us to some things and how we live this out. But there's a deep sense that in our moment, a lot of suffering is connected to mental health. Just a few stats. I know you're bored with stats, but 
uh, just to bring some awareness, and I know you hear this all the time, one in, one in five Americans exper- experience mental illness. 42 million Americans live with an anxiety disorder. Depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. There was a study that said 20% of youth aged 13 to 18 live with a mental health condition. 37% of young adults reported receiving help and treatment from mental, from mental health professionals. And suicide is the third leading cause of death in youth aged 10 to 24. These are staggering things, and there's been a lot of rise in new studies along the way, especially in the last decade. Wesley Town, who uh, was a pastor of a great church in Oregon, uh, kind of been exposed to him and chatted with him at times uh, just through social media, had to leave his church because his wife had a chronic illness, and uh, he's been doing a lot of work around mental health. He'd say this, mental health encompasses a person's well-being psychologically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually. And we need, to, we, need to, we need to be open to putting this on the table, especially with some of those stats before us. Now, there are some things when it comes to mental health that are out of our control. And we need to get serious about these things. And I, what I'm so thankful for is at least in culture too, there's a much, even 10 years ago, there's much more of an openness to talk about these things. So there's, there's a, there are some things that are out of our control. There are some mental disorders that can be hereditary or there can be chemical imbalance. Those are very, very real things and people experience that. There's also things out of our control like our environment. Some of you grew up in environments maybe of of abuse and manipulation or maybe hurts from the past. And these are very real things that are out of your control. You're in my control. Now I want everybody to listen to me. Can you lean in for a minute? Listen to me loud and clear. Because I notice that some in our community have been influenced by a culture in the church that would say, just pray more or just read your Bible more and everything will be okay. And not, I don't haven't experienced this as much in our community, but there are communities of people that would demonize things like professional therapy and professional help in the name of faith. And can we just squash that right now? Are we, can you nod your head with me? Can we just like, just like metaphorically stomp on that idea? Listen, here, and if you've been around, you know this. I believe professionals in the area, and we believe this. This is not just me. We believe professionals in the area of mental health are a gift from God. And we will do whatever it takes to access the help when needed for our community. Right? Don't get me wrong. I think prayer and intimacy with God is important. I actually think that's, that's my jam. Right? I think that's very, very important. But when it comes to things like anxiety and depression and mental health, we really want to encourage people to seek help when needed. You know, I've, and it's growing. I'm in a relationship, and we're as a church in relationship with people now um, that have great resources for this kind of things. And I think there, there's people that can help us in this journey. I'm also in relationship with a number of people who would be praying more, right, than they ever have and meditating on scripture more than they ever have but are still battling mental health issues, much of which are out of their control. And just being on the ground with people, the last thing somebody that's dealing with that just needs somebody to say, hey, you just need to read your Bible more and pray more and it's all gonna be better because I'm walking with people outside of our community too that are like, dude, I am praying more than ever. I think we need to be very careful 
to just uh, cast you know, some of these ideas on people. Listen, we seek a doctor, right, when we're sick physically, and we should do the same when it comes to our mental health. And some of the stigma that the church has put up, we just need to be very, very careful. Let's let the church be a place that's open to talking about mental health. Anybody with me? Come on, somebody. And my prayer would be that we'd be a community where this is on the table, where if this comes up, there would be so much grace and love. I mean, I know culture's talking about this, trying to get to a place where we're accepting of this, and I love that. But if anywhere should be the place for this, it should be right here, that people could take refuge and bring people in that are hurting in this area, that people could talk about their anxiety and their depression without being judged or, look at, or looked at as less than spiritual. And I just encourage you again, just to read a church history book. Many of our forefathers, and there's typically been most written about males in church history, many of them battled mental uh, conditions, things in their lives, depression. Some of the greatest preachers that have gone before us, even some of the Puritans, were, uh, uh, it's been shown that they had b- battled d- depression and anxiety. There are people that have gone before us. And so I just think, man, we need to create a place where we're open about this. So there's some things that are out of our control. The thing we also need to acknowledge, though, is that there are some things in our control when it comes to mental health right? There are some things that could be in our control. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about individuals. I'm, let's just talk about collectively as a society. Could there be self-inflicting things that we're doing to lead to the rise of mental health? Could there be? I'm not talking about you as an individual. I'm just talking about a collective as, just say London, Ontario, or Canada. Could there be self-inflicting patterns and habits that can lead us as a society to experience the mental health crisis we've seen emerge in the last 10 years? I would say, I would say yes, there are things in our control. Simple things. And Elaine, when she was here a few years ago, talked about this. What we eat, how we sleep, and whether we get exercise affects our mental health. So we live in a moment right now, and listen, I'm a dad of four on a pretty fixed income. I get it. We have a lot of high-processed foods. I'm chuckling because I just think of my own world, right? right? We live in a world of high-processed foods, high-carbohydrate ca- meals, and high-sugar intake. And I don't know if your Halloween candy's gone, but it was partly my fault too, so I'm, there's no judgment here, right? This kind of intake can affect our mental health. Lack of sleep can affect our mental health. Um, Before the light bulb with Edison and all that, uh, the average person, because of like electricity, was sleeping between, I think, 11 and 12 hours a night. And now it's down to like, I think, five and a half on average for people, right? So could there be patterns and things? There's things that are completely out of our control, but we've got to think about things in our control and how we do this. So like the Raptors were on the West Coast this week, and I was up late, like two or three nights in a row, because I'm that guy. I'm sorry, I'm just that guy. Leafs go on the West Coast this week. That's terrible, two weeks in a row. And even I feel it that with a lack of sleep, what that can do. So there's things in our control. There's also other things in our control that the church needs to talk about. Jean Tweed, uh, Twinge is her name, uh, is up high up in the psychology department at San Diego, San Diego State University. And a little while ago, she's done a number of studies. Um, A little while ago, she analyzed the mental health records of people. She collected a bunch of records from 1938, so like a long time ago, to uh, to 2007. 
So she took 63,000 different records from 1938 to 2007. And I think she was trying to answer the question, why does it seem like there's a huge rise in mental health crisis over these years? And it's true, the study saw a dramatic increase in psychological problems since the 1930s, especially depression. ABC News reported of this study that the researchers found that students today feel much more isolated, misunderstood, and emotionally sensitive or unstable than in previous decades. In addition, teens today are more likely to be narcissistic. This is not me saying this, this is a study, okay? All right, guys? All right, all right. Uh, narcissistic, have poor self-control, and to say that they're worried, sad, and dissatisfied with life. They concluded that consumerism is a major reason for the rise in mental illness. The study literally said this, we have become a culture that focuses on material things and less on relationships. Could there be patterns, could there be patterns in our culture that are in our control? We're living more isolated, more autonomous, and more consumeristic than ever, and that probably has a lot to play on where we're at in our current moment. And these are professional studies that I think we need to lean into. Now, I'm not, well, obviously we're not saying if you are battling and dealing with that, that everybody's a narcissist. But it seems like from my grandparents and my parents to now me to now my kids' generation, um, things are a little bit different when it comes to what's at our fingertips. Technology has changed everything. So there are some things in our control. There's also other things in our control, like Technology, screens, and social media. Yes, we are going there. Buckle up. Just say, just turn to the person beside you and say, just buckle up. We never do this, but just get them, you know, we need a little, I need a moment to sip my coffee, okay? Okay, so when it comes, when it comes to the rise in mental health and psychological problems, we also have to as the church, most churches aren't doing this, but we are committed to being a church connected to the culture. We have to look at the rise of technology. Now, before I say it, I am really thankful for some of the benefits of time-saving devices, the internet and social media. My four-year-old in the morning, on Saturday morning, can log himself into Netflix. And is that a game changer? All the parents are like, heck yes, it is. But I also, and some of you are like, you're judging me right now, and I'm totally okay with it because I get about an extra hour, so I don't really care what you think. It's all good. It's all good. But I think most of us agree, would agree, that technology has reared its head, and there are devastating consequences. It's crazy right now, if you read some of what's going on in Sil Silicon Valley, there are articles right now being written by executives in Silicon Valley who created the very devices in your pockets and yet they themselves don't use them and they will not let their children use them, right? There are Silicon Valley executives right now paying out the butt to send their kids to schools that are unplugged and te technology-free areas because they're the ones that have created these addictive devices and they know what they do can read about it. Uh, this is re it's so funny. This has recently led one writer in his new book to quote the notorious B.I.G. Anybody? Never get high on your own supply, right? This is, right? This is, junior hires, thanks for being here this morning. It's great. Okay. Um, it's good. But it's true. 
like these dudes that are creating the very apps and devices that are running and ruling our lives won't even let their kids use them. In 2017, Sean Parker, uh, I think you know him as Justin Timberlake in the social media, I think, That's, that was him. The first president of Facebook called himself a conscientious objector to social media. He said this about Facebook, and I quote, God only knows what it is doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means we need to give you sort of a dopamine hit even once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever and that is going to get you to contribute more content and that is going to get you more likes and more comments. And he says this, it's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploring a vulnerability in human psychology. The guy who helped create Facebook. They're addictive and they're out to steal our time. It's not all bad, but I'll, you know, we just need to think through this. There is, and there is, a connection between the current mental health crisis and the rise and the advent of the smartphone. And that's not just me saying, being a really astute pastor dude trying to make this uh, uh, objectification on my own. This is what all, I mean, there's all sorts of articles around. The rise of what we've seen in mental health has been spurred on primarily by the advent of the iPhone and the, the smartphone. Cal Newport, in his fascinating book called Digital Minimalism, talks about this. He references the same girl at San Diego State, Jean Tweege, as well, and he says this, young people born between 1995 and 2012, a group that they call iGen, exhibited remarkable differences as compared to the millennials, myself, that preceded them. One of the biggest and most troubling changes was iGen's psychological health. In quotes, rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed, and Tweens writes, it's not an exaggeration to describe iGen as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Newport goes on and says, tween, a, a tweenge, this lady at San Diego State, agrees with the intuition of the University Mental Health Administration when she notes this, that there are shifts in mental health and these shifts correspond exactly to the moment when American smartphone ownership became ubiquitous. And so we have to, we have to, as a church, talk about technology and social media because there is a connection here between mental health and technology. And as a church, in this cultural moment, we need to ask, how do we as Jesus followers in this moment, many of you will have kids over the next bunch of years, you have kids or will have kids, how do we confront social media and technology? Newport, in his book, would say that our culture's relationship with technology is complicated by the fact that we mix harm and benefits. And who's already done that today? Me. No, I already did it. I talked about how amazing Netflix is for my four-year-old. I'm, I'm, I'm at fault for this. But he, he goes on and says, we mix harm and benefits. And so usually the benefits take over the harm and nobody talks about the harm. Newport would say that our culture's relationship with technology is complicated because of these two things mixed together. And I've done it here. There are parts of technology that are astounding. But we, we have to clearly at least think through some of the destruction it brings. Social media is creating a culture of comparison like we've never seen before. And this is a world that my kids will grow up in. 
And here's the thing, it lies to us, it really does. It can be good, it can be used for good, but social media can lie to us. This was specifically enhanced in 2009 with something called the like icon. Adam Alter says this, he says, it's hard to exaggerate how much the like button changed the psychology of Facebook use. What, be, what had begun as a passive way to track your friends' lives was not deeply interactive. And he's talking about before 2009, it was primarily college students that were using Facebook to connect with each other, and then the like button came along. Alter goes on to describe users as gambling every time they post something on social media platform. Will you get likes or hearts or retweets? Or will you languish its no feedback? The former creates what one Facebook engineer calls bright dings of pseudo-pleasure, while the latter feels bad. It's messing a little bit with our mental and emotional health. And I could bore you with stats that the average person is on their phone 2.5 hours a day. The average person, millennials, the average person in my age group is five hours a day. So for those younger that aren't under control, it's way more. I could tell you that 2,500 times on average is how, many, the, how much the average person touches their phone over an average of 70 sessions. Somebody said this week, I thought it was funny, if you stayed off your phone and off social media, which I'm not saying you have to do, but if you stayed off your phone and social media, you could read 400 books a year. Book club, anybody? Anybody in? Anybody in? So it's affecting our emotional and mental and spiritual health. So I can just download all these thinkers and Silicon Valley people and people that have regretted even what they've created, that's not really helpful until we talk, as we end here, what do we do? So what do we do? What do we do with this? Some of us may be on our phone tons. It's affecting our mental and spiritual health. Many of us have kids or will have kids. Newport goes on and says, I've become convinced that what you need is a full-fledged philosophy of technology use rooted in your deep values, that provides clear answers to the questions of what tools you should use and how you should use them, and equally important, enables you to confidently ignore everything else. He calls it digital minimalism, a philosophy of technology and its use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected, optimized activities that strongly supplement the things you value and then happily miss out on everything else. He talks, actually, his, his suggestion would be a digital declutter. And I know you don't find chapter and verse on this, obviously. This is just general wisdom. But he would say, put aside a 30-day period in which you take a complete break from technology, uh, optimal, uh, optional technologies in your life, so things that are optional, and during that break, explore and rediscover activities and behaviors that you find satisfying and meaningful. And at the end of the break, then reintroduce optional technologies in your life, starting from a blank slate. For each technology you introduce, he says, determine what value it serves in your life and how specifically you will use it and how you will maximize it to its value. And so what's crazy in this book, and it's a secular book, I think he's a pseudo-Christian, you know, just in his language, I don't know. But he talks about how solitude and silence has tremendous benefits. And as I'm reading, I'm just laughing because I know a guy who talked a lot about silence and solitude and actually didn't just talk about it, actually just put it on display. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And this was a way of life for people who followed Jesus. And now they're saying silence and solitude Sabbath, 
all these secular writers are, are looking to the practices of the way of Jesus to go, this is actually the things that keep us sane. So we just need to think through that. Silence, solitude, but also maybe you need to do a declutter in your life. As well, Andy Crouch will close with this because I know there's many parents. Talks about 10 tech-wise commitments for our families. And uh, we can post this somewhere, post it on the blog or whatever. He says, one, we develop, the, uh, the first commandment, we develop wisdom and courage together as a family. Two, we want to create more than we consume. So being a creative family, so we fill the center of our home with things that reward skill and active engagement. Three, we're designed for a rhythm of work and rest, which is the Jesus way. So one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, we turn off our devices and worship, feast, play, and rest together. Four, we wake up before our devices do, and then go to bed, and they go to bed before we do. Uh, there's a high number too, and I, I, I'm guilty of this. People sleep beside their phones, so the first thing they see when they wake up is typically test, text messages or emails or likes on Facebook, which can kind of mess with our brain a bit. Five, we aim for no screens before double digits at school and at home. Six, we use screens for a purpose and we use them together rather than using them aimlessly and alone. Seven, car time is conversation time. Eight, spouses have one another's passwords and parents have total access to children's services. Nine, we learn to sing together rather than letting recorded and amplified music take over our lives and worship. And 10, we show up in person for the big events of life. We learn how to be human by being fully present and at our moments of greatest vulnerability. We hope to die in one another's arms. Listen, I'm failing at this. I'm the worst person to be up here, but I just think we need to think through this. If there's a connection be between the rise of mental health and what we're seeing in our culture and technology, it should be on the church to learn in the way of Jesus how to live this out. And if we do not deal with this, it will continue. Technology, social media will continue to be the greatest hindrance to being flourishing disciples of Jesus in our moment. If we just let it be, this will be the greatest hindrance, okay? You with me? You all right?